Hi there, it's Paula Ferris, and this is Journeys of Faith, where we talk to people about how their faith got them through the best and worst of times. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating, and make sure to come back next Wednesday for our latest episode. You might have already heard my interviews with Robin Roberts and country superstars Luke Bryan and Hillary Scott, but we're heading into a different direction now. My next guest hosts one of the most popular conservative podcasts out there. But before he was tackling politics, he was quite literally getting tackled by his peers. Thrown in trash cans, pushed in lockers, basically tied me down to a bed and hit with a belt. On this episode, conservative commentator Ben Shapiro talks the Bible and bullying. What an honor to speak with the one and only Ben Shapiro of The Ben Shapiro Show and of The Daily Wire. Ben, great to have you on our podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I want to talk to you specifically about your faith journey. You were raised in the faith. You're an Orthodox Jew, correct? Yes. Okay, so tell me about your personal faith journey growing up in Judaism and what that meant. Sure. So as I was growing up, we were, we were sort of traditionally Jewish, meaning that we kept uh, some sort of, of kosher, and we started going down to a synagogue in Venice when I was uh, a very small kid, when I was maybe three or four years old. I was more of an Orthodox-leaning synagogue. Uh, and then over time, my parents became more orthodox to the point that they wanted to send me to a Jewish day school when I was probably 11 years old. By the time that happened, um, you know, I was going to this Jewish day school, and I would come home and I'd say, you know, they're teaching me one thing, and we're not doing it at home. And my parents said, right, so we, we should start doing this at of home. Of course you so call your parents out. orthodox. But of course you call your parents out on that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, just, just like any other kid, I think. I think most kids would do that. You know, you go to, you go to school— they're telling you at school that everybody should be keeping Sabbath, and then you're driving on Sabbath, and so you say to your parents, well, you know, this is different from what they're telling me at school. And so my parents started to take it even more seriously. We moved into a fully Orthodox community when I was about 11 years old, uh, and I've been fully Orthodox ever since. I remember eating at non-kosher restaurants, but I've lived, you know, virtually all of my life uh, in, with, within Orthodoxy. When, when you say you moved into a fully Orthodox community, what does that mean? Uh, that means that the that you're within walking distance of a synagogue because you're not really supposed to drive on Sabbath. Uh, it means that there's a kosher supermarket nearby, there's some kosher restaurants nearby, uh, and a lot of your neighbors happen to be Orthodox. So it creates a, a strong feeling of, of community. The area that, that I live now is basically the same area where I grew up. I live about a mile and a half from my parents, and there, I would say that you know, a third of the population of the immediate area is Jewish and most of it is Orthodox. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a, it's a pretty cloistered community, even in a place like Los Angeles. Right. And in, in Orthodox Jew, what is what exactly does it mean? It means you're turning your phones off. You honor Shabbat, which is which means Sabbath. So what exactly happens? Tell Friday, me exactly Friday, what Sunday. you're doing Friday to Saturday. It's, you know, Gilligan's Island, no phones, no lights, no motor cars. Uh, and you are basically there with family. So you, you go to you go to a synagogue on Friday nights and you pray with the community. And then you come home and you have a, a family dinner. Uh, you do a sanctification over the meal. My, my wife lights candles with the kids. Uh, and then you, know, you wake up the next morning, you go to synagogue, you come home, you hang out with the family, you eat lunch with other families. Sometimes you invite people over, you spend time uh, talking about uh, the Bible, spend time uh, reading. It's very relaxing and it's, it's sort of a forced family time. It's a, it's a forced vacation from work. Uh, and then yeah, you go back in the afternoon for, for another service and then a final service for the Sabbath. And then you do Havdalah, which is this kind of beautiful service where uh, you light a candle to distinguish between the the Sabbath and the weekdays. And you smell uh, cinnamon, usually. Uh, mm-hmm. it's a, you smell some sort of spice to remind you of kind of the sweetness of, of Sabbath. I, I like that you, you call it kind of forced family time. But in this day and age where we are inundated, it it probably is a little refreshing just to kind of get away from it all. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. 
I'm a, I'm a workaholic, so I've had to forcibly stop myself from, from working when I get home from work at 5 p.m. Uh, and spend time with the kids and not check the phone and not check Twitter because, you know, when you're in the news cycle, you're, you're in it all the time. I, I literally feel like that, I'm hearing from you either on Twitter or your podcast, like, like literally 24-7. I don't know if you ever stop. And, and, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm really bad about this. But on Sabbath, I'm really good about it. So on Sabbath... You, there's legitimately no picking up of the phone. You're not supposed to violate Sabbath unless somebody's life is in danger. So, the so you, you are separated from the news. I mean, we we don't really get a newspaper because nobody does anymore, and that means that I don't know what's going on in the world from Friday night yeah. until Saturday night when I turn Twitter back on and find out that the world has exploded. You have in this news cycle. I mean, so much can happen in ten minutes. Yeah, that, that happens a lot. I remember there was one time on a, on a Jewish holiday. I think the Orlando massacre happened on a Jewish holiday, and I only found out about it. A day and a half later, when I when I started picking up the news, so it's you know you're really out of touch, and that is uh, I think a very good thing. You know, it, it forces you to kind of reevaluate eternal values because the news is about the values of now and the headline of now, but Sabbath and and being forced to separate from the news cycle means that you're supposed to focus on things that matter a lot more in the long run than than the daily news run. Yeah, I love that you talk about focus on eternal values, but okay, you're a profound thinker. You're a smart guy. You skipped two grades to graduate at age 16. You went to UCLA. You're a Harvard Law grad. Uh, when did you know, though, that this wasn't just the faith of your father and your mother, for that sake, but that it was the faith for you? Did you do a lot of research? When did you come to your own conclusion that it wasn't just the way you were raised, but it was the way that you wanted to live your life, and those were the beliefs that you were going to adhere to? You know, it's a, it's a continuous process of reevaluation. So uh, I would say that most Orthodox Jews spend an awful lot of time studying the Talmud, studying the Bible, which is for us the Torah, the, the Old Testament. Uh, and that means that you are constantly learning and rediscovering your faith and deepening it. So when you go to a religious school, you know, just like any other religious school, you sort of get the basics of your religion, but it's a, a rather unsophisticated version of what your religion is really all about. But one of the nice things about Judaism is that Judaism is ritually oriented. So you're legitimately living a lifestyle that is imbued with all of this activity related to Judaism on a minute-by-minute basis. I mean, every time we eat, we're supposed to say a blessing. Every time, we, every time we get up in the morning, we're supposed to wash our hands in a ritual way. And that means that your life is infused with a certain amount of religiosity. And so you're thinking about it a lot. Uh, and so for me, it, it, wasn't, it was never really a question as to whether I liked the religion. I, I lived the religion. So sure. it, was, it, it was natural. It's, it's like breathing air. But by the same token, the sort of deepening and philosophical understanding of the religion that's something that you have to spend time with. And I would say that your view, you know, my view of Judaism has probably changed over time towards something I think a little bit more sophisticated now uh, and something that I find more intellectually defensible than the kid version that I would teach my own kids when they're you know, five. So what is the version that you believe now? Uh, well, the version that I believe now is that there is eternal value to the Bible. I, I still believe that the Bible is the, is the word of God. But I also believe that the word of God was deliberately written in order to take into account human failings and deliberately written in order to take into account human reason. And so the Jewish tradition has been very, has been imbued with an enormous amount of dialectic exchange. So the Talmud is a 70 volume set of people just arguing about the various permutations (laughs) of the text of the Bible. And that means that you're spending an awful lot of time trying to determine you know, what God meant by X and what God meant by Y. At the same time, what Judaism does provide is certain fundamental values that are that are very root and, and root to Western civilization as well. To me, the best proof of the, the truth of the Bible and the best proof of the truth of, of God is the glory of Western civilization, which is built on twin foundations, the foundation of Jerusalem, i.e. The, the revelation at Sinai, 
and the foundation of Athens, the idea of reason is paramount. And the attempt to merge those two things is the birth of the West and the creation of the greatest civilization known to man. The, the values at Sinai that you couldn't get anywhere else, I, I think the chief value that you get uh, is beginning in Genesis, the idea that man is made in God's image is the single most transformative idea in human history. That it's not just important people who are made in God's image. It's not just the king who's made in God's image. If you, if you actually look at, at ancient texts, the tendency is that they're sort of the commoners who are just things. And then there are the people who are important. And the people who are important are the ones who are made in God's image. So if you read the Code of Hammurabi, the description of, uh, of Hammurabi is that he is made in God's image. The king was always made in God's image. But the extension of that to all human beings in the Bible uh, is a unique thing and leads to the idea of a, of a, of a universal human value which eventually leads to the idea of, of natural rights that are in, endemic to just being a human being. That, I think, is, is one of the first values that you learn. Uh, I think that you also learn through the Bible about the idea that history has a progression, that there's supposed to be progress in history. There are a lot of philosophies and religions that see history as sort of circular in nature, that it repeats itself, that we are all part of this sort of great stasis almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Judaism creates this great forward looking and forward driving historical feel that God has a plan for the Jewish people and by extension for all of humanity and that we are driving toward that plan. Judaism also places an enormous amount of of value on free will. It says in the Bible that you're supposed to choose life, that God places a choice before you and you're supposed to choose life. But the idea of choice is is vital and and rooted to Judaism. And that's different from a lot of other religions also, which sort of assume a certain level of of fate and determinism in the universe. Judaism is, is, is a lot more at peace with the idea of free will. And then finally, Judaism really embraces the, the exchange between man and God about what morality constitutes, which is why in the Bible you have Moses arguing with God and Abraham arguing with God. That's, that's a, a pretty uniquely Jewish concept, the idea of human beings arguing with God over what exactly morality is. And of course, human beings lose because they don't see the entire picture the way that God does. But the idea that God is bound by a morality that he himself created uh, is a contribution of Judaism. This journey of faith isn't over yet. We'll have much more after this break. Can you tell me some of the traditions that you love most about your faith? Oh, sure. Well, most ritual is is based in the kind of Maimonidean ideal based on Maimonides, probably the greatest thinker in Jewish history, or at least widely considered to be so. Okay. Uh, and um, Maimonides, you know, basically says that ritual is designed in, or he's 12th century rather, is, is, ritual is designed in order to uh, basically make you a better person and put you in connection with God. And also it's designed in order to teach kids. Well, the Seder is specifically designed that way. It's, a, it's, a, it's an educational meal, basically. So you sit there and there is a book of stories, basically, and you go through it with the kids and there's a bunch of stuff that is designed to elicit questions from the kids. The whole point of the night is to get your kids to ask questions. So you do mm-hmm. all these weird kind of rituals that are different from the norm, specifically so that your kid will ask you, why are you doing that tonight? Uh, and yeah, why it's, can't we just have really macaroni and cheese, mom and dad? Exactly, exactly. So, they, I mean, it's, it's literally the, the most famous part of the Seder is the four questions, which is, you know, what makes this night different from all other nights? And then there's a variety of things that do. And it's it's really wonderful, especially when you have your own kids. You know, it was different when I was, I was a younger kid. I really enjoyed the, the commentaries. Now I have my own kids and it's really about getting them involved. And they get so enthusiastic about learning about the history of the Jewish people and learning about the exodus from Egypt. And the idea of accepting obligation along with freedom is is baked into the meal. Uh, that's that's The whole idea is that it's not just freedom from Pharaoh's rule, 
it's it's that you're supposed to be free in order that you may serve God, which is the the other half of the verse that everybody tends to forget from Exodus. And it's not just let my people go; it's let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. Uh, so that's a um, yeah, I, I love that ritual. Good point. Uh, the one that people don't know that's not <laughs> the one that people don't know as much about. Uh, the uh, there, there are three major holidays in Judaism uh, aside from. Uh, aside from Yom Kippur, which is the the day of repentance, uh, and also from Rosh Hashanah, which is sort of the New Year, uh, the three major holidays uh, uh, holidays are Passover, and then Shavuot, which people also don't know, which is the giving of the Torah, uh, and then there is a Sukkot. Sukkot is probably the most fun for kids. So Sukkot is great because you actually go and you build a booth outside with palm fronds on top, uh, and the idea is that you're supposed to be imitating how the Jews lived when they were in the wilderness, and you eat all your meals in there, and you decorate it, and the kids help you decorate it. And it's just a beautiful holiday. Uh, it's it's very kind of nature oriented. So if that's your thing, it's it's really a. Kick. I can see how kids would absolutely uh, love that. They feel like they're reliving like Swiss Family Robinson or something. It's an adventure for them. Exactly, exactly. And it's specifically supposed to be built just according to Jewish law, so that it feels temporary. Because the whole idea spiritually is that our kind of place on earth is temporary. That mm-hmm. we're, we're there's eternity on both sides, and then the middle is where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's our temporary way station. And so to assume that all the materials that you are accruing are yours is to ignore the reality of the larger spiritual world around you. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, Sukkot is just great. Uh, and then as an adult, you know, you really start to appreciate some of the more serious aspects of Judaism. So Yom Kippur, which is something you dread every year when you're a kid, because it means that after you're 13 as a boy or 12 as a girl, you have to start fasting, right, which is a 25 hour fast, no food, no water. Um, and that's always a drag. Now, you know, that now that you're older and you realize that there's a, an enormous amount of, of mercy in God giving you the chance to repent before him, then the idea of sitting in synagogue all day and kind of spilling your guts to God and saying, listen, I, you know I'm going to sin again. You know I'm going to make this mistake again, but I'm pledging you right now that I'm going to try not to do it. And so you're going to, even knowing the future, knowing what I'm going to do, you're going to take my sincerity at face value. That's an enormous gift that God gives you. So uh, Yom Kippur is uh, in many ways sort of the most underrated Jewish holiday, even though it's the most important one probably. Um, in the Orthodox community, the actual bar mitzvah is the part that matters. And the bar mitzvah is where you go and you read a blessing from the Torah for the first time as a man. And in the Orthodox community, it's also tradition that you actually read from the Torah. Now, what's hard about reading from the Torah is that in actual Torah scroll, if you look at it, it doesn't have any vowels and it doesn't have any uh, punctuation. So if you're going to read from that the Torah, sounds then fun. you actually have, <laughs> yeah, so you really have to memorize the vowels and the punctuation. Uh, and then you also have to memorize sort of the the cancellation, the the what they call the trope, uh, and so you know you're reading pages and pages of text that are basically sung, and you're doing so without any vowels or punctuation, and you have an entire congregation that is basically o- obligated to correct you if you get something wrong because if you read the the Torah in a public way, then you're not allowed to get it wrong because everybody is is supposed to maintain the integrity of it. So um, for me, my my parsha, which is the Jews separate the five books of Moses into weekly sections. So there are about 50 of them across the course of the year. And you read through all of them once a, you know, one, once a week, you read one of them. So my Bible portion was the portion from Exodus uh, in which the Jews actually leave Egypt and the, the sea is split. Uh, so I read that at the, at the synagogue and then I uh, continued the prayers for the synagogue. And then afterward, uh, we basically had a lunch at uh, kind of a, a small scale lunch down the street uh, and I gave a little speech about the uh, about the Bible portion. And none of this is rare. This is pretty typical in the, the Orthodox community. And then my bar mitzvah party was not dropping a bunch of money on a DJ because that's not my thing. 
my bar mitzvah party was I took about four of my friends to Disneyland with my family. So of that was of course you took <laughs> them to Disneyland. Mitzvah. I love it. Do you still Disneyland's mean, the best? Come on, Disneyland's I, great. I mean, and I have some. We have a test in my family. We have a basic test in my family with, with dating, which is that. Uh, if you if you take somebody to Disneyland and they can't enjoy it and you're dating them, then you should immediately break up with them. It means I love they have it. No joy. Like, why are we going to Disneyland on our first date? Because if you can't pass the Disneyland test, you're gone. I love that. Um, do you still remember oh, yeah. what what the, the Hebrew script that you had to read from the Torah? Oh yeah, I mean I can I, I could probably do the first seventh of it. My dad and I used to sit in the parking lot waiting for my sisters to get out from school, and my dad would have the book open on his lap, and I would have the the version without any of the vowels and punctuation. And uh, my dad would check me on it. So I'm very tight with my father. And, and he I and I that. used to go over it literally every day for probably eight months in advance of actually reading it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Let's go back to you talked about kind of questioning your faith. And it's it's always evolving. Your faith is always changing. Was there a time that you think your faith was really tested? And, and how did you return back to your faith after that? So, you know, I got to be honest, I, I've never really felt like my faith was tested in the sense that I never expect from God in kind of the way that tests people's faith. So it seems to me that people fall away from faith for two reasons. One is they have expectations that God is going to do X, Y, or Z for them, and then God doesn't do it, and then they're angry, Mm. uh, and they feel that God is unjust. I have never felt that way about God. I've always had a pretty easy time believing that God knows better than I do. So if there is something that has gone wrong in my life, then it's either my own fault or it's for some reason that I don't understand. So I've never had tons of expectations of God. Like I, I've never really felt the, the sort of question that, that people have, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? My answer is number one, I don't know, right? There's no good answer to that question. And, answer, and, and if there were a good answer, we'd all know it. Exactly. So, yeah, everyone keeps asking that it, question and none of us really have an answer. Right. And, and so I, I, what I do have also is a feeling that all that we have in front of us is sort of the task that's before us. And it just so happens that if you tend to follow with biblical morality, your life ends up being better on average, not every time on average, than it would be if you didn't. Uh, and in a, that, that I do believe. I think that the rules that are laid down for conduct in, under biblical morality make your life better, make it richer, and make you more likely to be a, a decent and useful human being. Um, so, you know, that, that's sort of question number one. Then question number two is always that, that, that I see people fall away from the faith is that they see people with whom you know, they are, they hold a religion in common. And then those people end up being jerks. They do something terrible. And then that sort of disillusions them about the religion. And mm-hmm. so like right now you're seeing this a lot in the Catholic church with regard to some of these scandals. And I've never found that particularly persuasive either, because I think people are by nature you know, stuck between being divine creatures and being garbage. So <laughs> I, I, people have the capacity to be <laughs> angels or be devils. And just because a religious person ends up acting like a devil, I don't think is a reflection on the religion as much as it is a reflection on the human being and how that human being is acting. And and I can say that as somebody who was viciously bullied at a Jewish high school and to the point of physical abuse, like that never made me doubt Judaism or God. It made me doubt why these people were, were being treated with any modicum of respect. But right. that's, a, that's a different question. So the two kind of main pathways of falling away from religion never really applied. Now, that said, I can't blame anybody for, for example, experiencing you know, pain far beyond what I've gone through and then saying, I can't accept the answer that God has a better plan or I can't accept the answer that any kind God would allow X to happen, right? If somebody goes through the Holocaust, I'm not a person who's going to sit in judgment and say, you know, you must believe in God because obviously your faith is is coming up short. I, I'm not, I've not sat in that seat. You know, I can say what that, I can say what I think is true. Um, but, you know, the, if somebody experiences something deeply painful, all you can have for somebody who does something like that is sympathy. I don't think that's the, the right answer. I don't think it's it's even 
on an ethical level, the mm-hmm. ethical answer, but I, but I certainly think it's understandable, obviously. Yeah, I, faith can help us through so many of our low points. You said just a moment ago that you weren't just bullied. You were viciously bullied in high school. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So so can you tell us a little bit about that, how you got through it? Oh, well, I was two years younger than everybody else. Um, I was uh, a lot shorter because I only hit my growth spurt right as I was finishing high school because I graduated at 16, so I probably hit my growth spurt at 15. Uh, so I spent most of my high school years two years younger and half a he- half a foot shorter than everybody else. Mm. Uh, and I also happened to be, you know, one of the smarter kids in the class. Uh, and that meant that um, I was sort of targeted for that. Also, you know, like any other, I-, I think it's more common in probably parochial school than it is in public school where the, the population of the class changes a lot. Uh, in Jewish schools, very often people are in class with people for 12 years. You're in the same class as all your friends for, for 12 years. Uh, and so by the time I entered kind of high school, I had not been part of any of those cliques. So when I joined the high school, all the cliques were already formed. So that meant that, you know, I'd get, I wouldn't say like beaten up on a regular basis, but I would be, you know, thrown in trash cans, pushed in lockers. There was one situation particularly bad where I was, uh, where we were on a uh, kind of a sleepaway uh, as a class uh, and a couple of kids basically tied me down to a bed and hit me with a belt. So, I mean, you know, it got pretty bad. (laughs) Um, But that's a, but, you know, that's a, what can you do about that? I mean, nothing. Uh, it's, it's so, you know, the, the administration should have done more to stop it, obviously. And I remember my father, um, you know, basically demanding of the administration that he got in a room with the kids who had abused me. Uh, and my dad's a big guy. I'm not. Uh, and my dad mm-hmm. uh, said to said to the kids, you know, you're cowards. He, you're, my son's a lot smaller than you. If you want right now, we'll go into the parking lot and I'll fight each one of you one at a time. If you actually want to take on someone, I kind of love your dad for that. I kind of love your dad for that. <laughs> yeah, my, my no, my dad's awesome. Uh, and you know, there, there's some of that. But again, my my all of this, you, you can either meet adversity like that by caving to it, or you can grow a thicker skin. And I always sort of chose to grow a thicker skin because life throws a lot of crap at you. Yeah. How, how did you, you said you just grew a thicker skin. That's easier said than done. How'd you get through it besides graduate? I mean, graduation definitely helped, but <laughs> I mean, the, the way that I got through it basically Sorry. was, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the way that you get through it is just by buckling down and focusing on the things that you can control. And mm, I won't pretend that high school wasn't rough. I, I hated high school. I mean, I still probably, probably three weeks ago, I had a high school nightmare. You know, I'm 34, so <laughs> that's not that's not rare. But you had um, a nightmare, like a, a nightmare about high school. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, just uh, the, I think it was something to do with like my parents wanted me to go to an event at high school, and I was high school age, and I was just ragingly angry at my parents over it, uh, which probably was pretty accurate at mm-hmm. the time. Uh, you know, I was I was always very close to my parents, but. I was pretty angry that that was happening. But it's, again, I I don't, uh, I've said this to my wife many times because she is in the medical field and that means that she's been on the doctor track for 10 years. And that means she's worried over an awful lot of tests and an awful lot of things she's had to get done. And what I've always said to her is time doesn't stop moving. And that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. When things are great and time doesn't stop moving, that's a terrible thing. But when things are bad, time still doesn't stop moving. Mm -hmm. So so it feels like time is going to stop dead. And when you're depressed or when you're upset, it feels like, you legitimately can't move and time is never going to move beyond this. But the sun will rise tomorrow. The clock will continue ticking and eventually you won't be in that position anymore. Did you ever wonder in those moments where you were either being tied down to sleepaway camp or thrown in a trash can or locked in a locker, where God are you in all of this? 
Not really. I just figured that uh, I, I just figured that these people were jerks. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I never I never worried about like, oh God, I wish you would strike these people dead. It was more like, why are these people's parents such like? Where are their parents? Where mm-hmm. are the adults in this situation? Like, I put a lot of and because I, I believe so much in free will and I believe so much in personal responsibility, I have a hard time blaming God for people doing bad things. I just think, where are all the good people stopping the bad people from doing these bad things? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's always been more of a question to me. It's why I've always focused a lot more on the problem of human evil and human complicity in evil than on God. Like, if God wanted to create us without free will, he could. But I think that 95% of problems on Earth are created by people exercising their free will in particularly nasty, evil ways, self-interested ways. Mm-hmm. It's why I spend an awful lot of time worrying about the perversion of institutions or the destruction of individual lives in an attempt to uphold an institution, which I think is probably one of the key problems facing just all human beings everywhere at all times. Okay. Tell me, where do you think you would be without your faith, Ben? Um, you know, I, I think that I'd have a hard time, a harder time finding purpose. Uh, I think that my faith provides me a level of purpose in life. I think I know what I'm aimed toward. I, I think I know why being a good person matters. I think it provides a level of philosophical stability. What's really funny about a lot of folks who are secular is they think that the roots of faith lie in sort of this childlike belief. And I think that a lot of uh, a lot of secular morality is based on sort of whistling past the philosophical graveyard. Uh, if you're an actual scientific materialist, I, I, would, I would have a very hard time not taking that all the way. Uh, I think I'd be a more sinful human being. I'd probably be a worse person uh, just because people I see who are you know, bright and don't feel a lot of boundaries, tend to act out in ways that hurt other folks. Uh, and I, I certainly wouldn't feel a sense of, of peace. It would, I, I struggle to see how folks raise kids, honestly, outside of the framework of some sort of basic assumptions about life that faith tends to undergird. And to me, you know, the purpose of life is to live out faith in a way that God would be pleased with. And that involves figuring out how to raise your kids. And I think that one of the things we've seen in society is a group full of folks who are confused as to how to raise their own kids because they're not even sure how they believe people ought to live. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Is, is there a word that you could that you could summarize to describe your faith or two? Uh, determined, uh, purpose-driven. Uh, I think th- those would be the two that come to mind. It, it, to, to me, my faith is both the foundation of my work and also the fuel that, that drives me to get up and, and go do that work every day. Except on Friday nights to Saturday. exactly even Uh, god took one day off yes he did i love it ben shapiro it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for sharing your faith journey with us hey thank you so much thank you for listening to journeys of faith if you think there's someone that we should have on the podcast let me know tweet me at paula ferris and a big thanks to the team at abc radio Susie Liu, mike debusky lewis millman josh cohan andrew kalb and steve jones i'll talk to you next week